You remember in, well, maybe you won't remember, it's been a few months now, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul asks the question, is Christ divided? And one of the major themes in the book of 1 Corinthians is unity. Specifically, Paul is correcting the disunity in the Corinthian church. He's condemning it and correcting it, as our theme tells us. One of the areas that the Corinthians are dealing with disunity is the area of spiritual gifts. We learned, or you learned last time, that every Christian is given a spiritual gift from God. Why? Look at verse 7 with me in chapter 12 as a reminder. But to each one of you is given the manifestation of the Spirit, a spiritual gift in other words, for the common good. In Ephesians 4.12, Paul writes along the same lines that pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the church. In other words, right, we have gifts given to God and pastors and teachers are part of those gifts and they are to equip us, equip us in our giftedness for the good of the church, for the building up of one another. But in Corinthians, in general, certainly not all, they were using their spiritual gifts not for the good of the church, but rather they were using them to glorify themselves and to show off, we might say. So Paul corrects their thinking. And in this passage this morning, he gives us the basis of their unity and the beauty of their unity. And in so doing, he also illustrates the body of Christ through the analogy of the human body. In this comparison, Paul compares the body of Christ, the church, to the human body. Begin reading with me in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. In these verses, we have the basis of our unity, the basis of our unity. Paul introduces us to his analogy here, the human body and the body of Christ, but he also gives us the basis of our unity found at the end of verse 12 into verse 13. At the end of verse 12, he says, uh, they are many, that is the members of the body, but they are one body, so also is Christ. We could re render that, uh, so it is with the body of Christ. Meaning that just like the human body has different unique parts, all made up into one body, so it is with the body of Christ. But before we dive into these details of Christ, or excuse me, of Paul's analogy, let's talk about the, the basis of the body of Christ. I think it is helpful to ask the question, where does the, the body of Christ come from? You know that when we speak of the body of Christ, uh, we can use that in the same terms as a, a syn synonymous with the church. And we know the church is not the building or the campus, right, but the people. So how is it that the body of Christ comes to be? Do you sign up for the church? Do you just show up and therefore you're, you know, considered part of the body of Christ? Do you get asked to join in some way? If someone just shows up here at youth group, does that mean they're part of this body, another body? Or maybe, you know, do you have to go through that process of church membership in order to become that official member? How is it that you become a body or part of the body of Christ? Paul gives us the answer in verse 13. Reread it with me. 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. In verse 13, we find the basis of our unity. And there's two parts to this. First, spirit baptism. And second, the indwelling spirit. When Paul says that we're all baptized into one body, he's talking here about spiritual baptism. When he says that we are all made to drink of one spirit, he's talking about the indwelling spirit, right? When someone becomes a Christian, they have the spirit dwelling within them. And so the the basis of our unity is spirit baptism and the indwelling spirit. First, let's cover spiritual baptism. Spiritual baptism. What is spiritual baptism? As I thought through how to explain this, I I couldn't find a better way of doing so than backing up to John the Baptist. Now, why do we call John John the Baptist? It's not because he was the pastor of the first Baptist church in the Judean wilderness, right? It might be more accurate to call him John the Baptizer because he baptized people. And John baptized people with water. But what did he say about baptism? You could turn there or you could just listen. Matthew 3, 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. Who's John talking about? Jesus, right? He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, John's baptism, like I said, was a water baptism, and his water baptism is a little different than our water baptism. His water baptism prepared people for the coming of Christ. Our water baptism looks back at what Christ has done in our hearts. But let's talk about this Holy Spirit baptism, and we'll discuss a little bit the baptism by fire as well. This spiritual baptism that Jesus brought is also called regeneration or the new birth. You've heard these words, I'm sure. That's when God takes that old stony hardened heart out of the believer, metaphorically speaking, and gives him a new heart of flesh so that he can repent of his sins and believe upon Christ. That metaphor comes from Ezekiel 36. Remember that although we must respond to the gospel, it's God who acts first in salvation. And the first thing that God does when salvation is applied to the individual sinner is gives him that new heart. God acts in regeneration or the new birth. And another way to say regeneration or the new birth is spiritual baptism. And spiritual baptism speaks to the side of regeneration, of of washing or cleansing. In regeneration, God not only gives us a new heart of flesh to properly respond to the gospel message in repentance and faith, but he cleanses us of our vileness and our sin, both positionally and then in practice as you work your way through the Christian life. Some of you have this verse memorized, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How? How did he save us according to his mercy? Paul goes on there to say, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. When God saves the sinner, the sinner not only has a new identity in Christ, that's why Paul here speaks about the fact that there's no longer Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, right? It's not like you're just no longer a a Texan, You still are, but that's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. But God also washes and sanctifies that sinner when he gives him that new identity. God sets that Christian apart, positional sanctification, 
for works and good deeds that he has planned, but then he also cleanses us. That's the progressive part of sanctification. As we work through our Christian life, we continually die to sin and become more and more righteous like Christ practically. That's what spiritual baptism is. God giving the sinner a new heart of flesh so that he can believe and being brought into the body of Christ. Washed of his sins, not only positionally at regeneration, but then practically throughout his Christian life. So then spiritual baptism, we could say, is uh, synonymous with conversion, with conversion. So how does one become part of the body of Christ? I ask that question. Or maybe we could say it a, another way, right? What Paul is answering here, what is the, the first part of the basis of our unity? Our unity is not in the fact that we show up to the same building. Our unity is not the, the fact that... Uh, um, we, we live in the same area and therefore come to the same church. It's in the fact that we've been converted. We are now in Christ. We are dead to our sins, no longer slave to sins, but slaves to righteousness. God is the one who acts first in salvation and brings us into this body, the body of Christ. And his grace requires that what? That you and I repent and believe, right? It's not so much just, uh, you know, it is God acting first and he changes your heart, but it requires a response from you. Perhaps you sit here asking yourself, you know, am I truly spiritually baptized? Am I truly part of Christ's body? First ask yourself, have I repented and believed? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation? Abandoning any good works that you think you might have. If you have, that, that's good. Now do you continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? Justification is not, it is that legal declaration, but it's never separated from the fact that then you live a life of good works, right? We call this fruit. Is there fruit? Meaning that you continually fight your sin and fight for holiness. Not in perfection, as Pastor Tom says, but in direction. Is the pattern of your life one of fighting for sin and fighting for holiness? If not, then you have reason to question whether or not you are spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit. But do recognize that every person, every creation of God's who's been created in his image will be baptized. John said that Jesus will bring the spiritual baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and baptism by fire. What does baptism by fire mean? It means that you will be eternally separated from God you will bear the full force of his wrath, his justice in the eternal lake of fire. Jesus will baptize every one of his creatures, either with the Holy Spirit or with fire. If you decide to refuse the gospel and decide to refuse that you need to repent of your sins and you need to believe upon Jesus Christ, this is reserved for you. You have volunteered yourself for the baptism of fire. Now, now just think with me, what is baptism? You know the picture, people are immersed into water. Now think of that, baptism by fire. People are immersed into fire for eternity. It's not a, a pleasant picture. It's not meant to be a pleasant picture. God's justice demands that sins be punished. And that punishment 
Christ took on the cross on behalf of all those who would turn from their sins and turn to him. You must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you fail to do so, this baptism is reserved for you. If you're not in Christ, don't pass up another evening of eternal joy and peace because of what Christ has done for you for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, transitioning a little bit, maybe you've heard that the the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place later, right? I said it's synonymous. Uh, It takes place at conversion. And maybe you've heard that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at a later time, right? You're converted, and then at a later time, you receive the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this is called a a second blessing, right? And you're able to then uh, obey God more or something along those lines. Or, Or maybe more spiritual gifts come to you. You need to know that this is a false teaching. False teachers teach that you need to be converted and then at some other time you receive the Holy Spirit or are spiritually baptized, but that's not the case. You don't receive half of the Holy Spirit at at conversion and then half of the Holy Spirit some other time. You receive all of the Holy Spirit at conversion and you have all of his power and all of the means that God grants you in order to fight sin and fight for holiness. Second Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Next, Paul talks about the indwelling of the spirit, the indwelling of the spirit. I mentioned this already, but at the end of verse 13, he says that we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, we'll talk a little bit uh, as to why he says it that way. Um, It's not a familiar saying to us. We don't say that we drink of one spirit. We, We refer to it as the indwelling spirit. At conversion, the Holy Spirit not only baptizes us into the body of Christ, but you know that he takes up residence where? In our hearts. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Paul speaks of the Christian. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So then, at conversion, not only baptize into the body, but also receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you belong to Christ. That's why. And he wants to enable you, give you the power to no longer be that slave to sin, right? Practically speaking, we know we aren't, but we also know that we struggle with sin. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of of the, the word that he has inspired, we can fight that sin. Paul says as much earlier in this letter, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Why don't you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Paul says the following, or, you, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is what it means to have the indwelling spirit in you. You've been bought with a price. You now live to righteousness and not to sin because not only has Christ died for you, but he's given you everything you need to do so. You do not have to sin. Now, I said I would mention, why does Paul say the, the, that we drink of one spirit? Why does he say it in this way? And I think 
Now, there's some discussion about this, but I think it's because he's alluding to communion. And I don't think he's alluding to the actual fact of communion. If you were in the first service or you're going to the second service, we take, we'll take communion today. But what goes along with communion? We're not only remembering the fact that Christ has uh, his work, his, his life and death and resurrection on our behalf, but there's also a spiritual cleansing that takes place. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So I, I believe Paul is alluding to that spiritual cleansing that takes place in not only the indwelling spirit living inside of us, but also during communion and should take place during communion. Why, why is this? Why is this important here in the context of spiritual gifts? Think about it, if you're living for yourself, if you're living in sin, if you're living with unconfessed sin, do you think that you're going to have God's blessing in the use of your gifts, the spiritual gifts that he has given you? No. And do you think that that's going to help you be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ if you're living in sin as a Christian? No. And so it's important here and we do it every time, or we should do it every time we take communion to remember the spiritual cleansing that has taken place and that fight for spiritual cleansing that we must take part in each and every day. So the basis of our unity, the spiritual baptism, Christ baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, which again is just another way of saying we've been converted, highlighting the spiritual cleansing. And, and I, let me just highlight this real quick. The fact that we're, we're uh, converted as individuals, right? We're not converted as one big group. We're converted as individuals, but you're not converted to be an individual. You're converted to be part of the body of Christ. So you're converted as an individual to be part of the body of Christ. And then second, not only is it that spiritual baptism, but also the indwelling spirit. This is the basis of our unity that Paul speaks of here before he goes into spiritual gifts and how they manifest themselves in the body of Christ. Your second point, major outline point this morning, is the beauty of our unity, our diversity. The beauty of our unity, our diversity. In these verses, Paul continues to exhort the church to unity within their use of the spiritual gifts, and he dives into his analogy of the human body. Now, who can tell me how many systems are in the human body. You know what I mean when I say a system? Muscular system, skeletal system, nervous system. How many systems are in the human body, do you know? Seven more. No, more. <laughs> 11, well done, 11. There's 11 systems in the human body. And each of these systems are made up of individual parts, right? You know how many muscles are in the human body? Over 600. How many bones? Do you know how many bones are in the human body? Huh? 206? Well done. Yeah. How about nerves? Anybody know how many nerves? Over 7 trillion. 7 trillion nerves in the human body. If you were to take, this is a little gross, but if you were to take the nerves out of one human body and line them all up, it's like 45 to 50 miles. That's from here to like Camp Copus or past. That, that's how many nerves are in your body. The, the point is that the body is extremely complex and made up of many, many 
different parts, but it all acts as one unit. John MacArthur says, quote, the human body is by far the most amazing organic creation of God. It is marvelously complex, yet unified with unparalleled harmony and interrelatedness. It is a unit. It cannot be subdivided into several bodies. If it is divided, the part that is cut off ceases to function and dies, and the rest of the body loses some of its functions and effectiveness. The body is immeasurably more than the sum of its parts. End quote. The point is that the human body is complex yet unified. In the same way, the body of Christ is complex but unified. It should be unified. But that's not what was happening in the Corinthian church. Read with me verses 14 through 17. For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? In these verses, Paul begins to personify the body. You know what that means, right? It's as if the the hand or the foot or the ear was, was speaking and could speak. And Paul does this in this section to show that ultimately we shouldn't be envious of other people's gifts that God has given them. And we shouldn't think that we and the gifts that God has given us is or are insignificant. Now, obviously, we know that our, our feet and our hands and whatever else uh, can't actually speak, right? I mean, if I was, my brain sent signals to my hand that was going to pick up my, you know, water bottle here. And you know the, how, well, you likely know how the body works, right? I mean, it tells the muscles and the, and the nerves to move and it move, the muscles move and the tendons move, the skeletal system. And then I go down and wrap my fingers around that water bottle so I can take a drink. I mean, but if I got this close and my hand turned around and was like, no, I'm taking the day off. I don't want anything to do with that. And whatever. I mean, we laugh, right? We might be a little freaked out. I mean, and it's a ridiculous picture, is it not? But it's the same ridiculousness when that happens in the body of Christ. I'm not going to show up today. I'm not really all that important. Why is Paul painting this ridiculous picture for us? It's because this is how some of the people in the Corinthian church were acting. See, in general, the Corinthian church was one marked by selfishness and envy. The Corinthians would look at the spiritual gifts such as uh, prophesying and, and speaking in tongues, which means to speak a language that you've never studied. I can't believe you, you prophesied so elegantly, they would say to one another, or, or Man, you know, I wish I had the gift of, of tongues that I could speak in a language that I never, I never studied. Or you interpreted it. You interpreted it so well. And, and all I got was this gift of service. That's how the Corinthians were acting. They wanted these more prominent gifts. I can't prophesy, some were saying. I can't speak in tongues. So therefore, I mean, am I really that important? Do they really need me at church? That's not true, though. We need each other. Think, think about the, the hand. What if, uh, 
If someone, if someone asked you, you know, if you had to lose one finger on your hand, which one might it be? If someone asked me that, I'd probably say the pinky. I mean, it's the smallest, it's the most insignificant, right? I don't know why you're losing a finger on your hand. Just go with me. But the pinky, somewhere between 35 to 50% of your grip strength comes from your pinky. I mean, that much for this little guy? And here I thought it was just to extend from espresso shots so that I can look all delicate, dainty, right? That's how it is with the, the body of Christ. Every part is crucial. And when we are missing a part, we notice it or we should. Don't ever think, you know, they don't need me there at Countryside. They have all so many volunteers, so many people already serving. They're, they're probably better off without me. I'll just stay home. I won't come to church today. There's no need for me to be there. I'll just slip in and I'll slip out without interacting with anyone. It would be a pretty lame excuse, right, if you just woke up one day and you're like, yeah, Mom, Dad, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to go to church today, you know. I mean, I'm not Pastor Tom. I'm not Seth. I'm not Pastor Justin. I, I mean, there's really no point for me to, to go. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? That's the picture that Paul is painting for us. It's not a valid excuse. Any more valid for our, our pinky or our hand to say, I'm going to take the day off. So let, let's just talk about this practically a little bit. When you, when you come to church, right, you should be coming to church. Yes, we're, we're coming to church to be fed. That's part of the reason we come, to, to feed on the word of God and to be taught and to learn and to put into practice God's word. But, but are you coming with the mentality that you're needed? Are you coming with the mentality that you are to be serving one another? Right? I mean, and it, it, we can use the analogy, and, and we're talking about, again, the fact this is all the time. It's not just when you're coming onto this campus, right? The body of Christ is interacting all the time, not just when they're here on campus. But just very practically and simply, right, if, if you're not here, how are you supposed to know if, if somebody, somebody's countenance is down and one of your friends is going through a rough time, right? And how, how are you supposed to know how to pray for them? Or even if somebody's here or not here, right? Well, I haven't been here for three weeks. Oh, well, neither have I. You, you, how are you going to practice things like the one another's? I think that's probably the easiest application here. You know the one, of no, one another's. Anybody know how many one another's there are in Scripture? It's not seven trillion, thankfully. About 159 of them are commands. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be patient with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, be devoted to one another. Is this your attitude when you, you come to church, ready to practice the one another's, loving one another, encouraging one another, being devoted to one another? It should be. Or do you think that your presence here is unnecessary or that you're just coming to hang out? Right? I mean, there's a sense in which you are because you come to fellowship, but that fellowship and that hanging out should be intentional, building one another up. It's our job to practice these one another's all the time, not just when we're on the church campus. So to summarize verses 14 through 17, we're not to be envious of the gifts that God has given others, which Paul will squash that here in a second, but we're also not to think that our presence here and the gifting that God has given us to use in the church is insignificant, whatever it may be. Now, in verses 18 and 19, like I said, 
Paul kind of squashes this idea that, uh, you know, one gift is more important than another gift, and he reminds the Corinthians that there's one Lord of the body, one Lord of the body. Read with me verses 18 and 19. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? Paul's point, again, is exhorting them towards unity in the use of their spiritual gifts. And he does so by reminding them that it's God who chooses which gifts to give to each individual member. Now, we don't, I hope you don't say this, but we don't say, man, you know, I didn't get the gift of teaching or the Corinthians were saying, I didn't get the gift of prophesying. I didn't get the gift of tongues. I mean, I think God messed up. He didn't give me the gift that I wanted. He didn't give me the gift that I should have had. Now, nobody's really that bold to say that, but when we're complaining or the Corinthians are complaining about what gifts they have, that's essentially what they're doing. Instead, they should be content with the gifts God has given, as should we. While at the same time exercising those gifts that God has given us to make us all the more excellent at using them. Now, how do you become... There's, I guess there's two sides of this. How do you know what your spiritual gift is and how do you become good at using the gift that God has given you? First, well, it's a little backwards, but it's the way it is in my notes. How do you become good at using the gift that God has given you? First and foremost, you need to strive for holiness and righteousness. Like we mentioned earlier, do you think God is going to bless you in the use of your spiritual gift if you're not striving for holiness? Just listen to 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, earlier in the passage, Paul mentioned sin, wickedness, idolatry. If he cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. There's a reason... Paul talked about conversion the way that he did earlier in the chapter, by the washing, right? That, that spiritual washing, because it's essential that you practice holiness and righteousness in order to use your gifts and in the use of your gifts or gift. Every Christian has received at least one gift, usually more than one, and you need to practice these by practicing holiness. And then, of course, just practicing them in general, right? You don't, you don't find out that you're good at basketball or playing a certain instrument gifted in that area. Uh, these are not spiritual gifts. But you don't learn if you're good at those things unless you pick up a ball, you start playing, you pick up that instrument, and you start playing, right? You need to get out there and use what you think you might be good at. And so how do we know what our spiritual gifts are? I think Justin covered this a little bit. But first, you simply can ask God. God, help me. If, I'm, if you're confused, if you're like, hey, I don't know what my spiritual gifting is, you just ask God. He, he will give you wisdom. He might not, you know, when you're converted, he doesn't whisper in your ear, you know, now I'm going to give you this spiritual gift. But he has put other brothers and sisters around you to help you discern, especially your small group leaders, to help you discern where you're gifted. And then find the place that needs service, right? I mean, maybe the AV team needs help. You go, you serve for however long they make you serve, a month or so, and you're like, you know what? This is not my gifting. I'm just messing things up back here. Now, they'll be patient with you and teach you, and you might find out, hey, yeah, this is a place where I'm gifted, and I can serve in this 
area. But you have to get out there and try and use those different things that you might be good at or think you might, think you might be good at in order to figure out where you are spiritually gifted. It's the same with teaching, anyone who has taught, right? I mean, standing up here and teaching when you're not used to it is not comfortable, right? I mean, I mean anybody here loves standing up in front of a bunch of people and talking? Okay, one person, Sam. I should have known there would be at least one. But the, the point is, right, I mean, I wasn't comfortable either. And there's still times that I'm not comfortable. But I didn't know. I, I couldn't find out until I tried. And the Lord has blessed my efforts and confirmed my gifting. And I'm thankful for that. But it's no different. God is the one who equips his body. He is the one who decides who is gifted in what way. And we must be content with the way he's gifted us. And instead of, you know, trying to be gifted in a different way, sharpen the giftedness that he has given us, both in striving for holiness and exercising that giftedness. Now, in verses 20 through 26, Paul returns to the, the analogy of the body, and he again personifies the individual parts of the body. But here he's highlighting the fact that no one is independent. No one is independent. So read with me verses 20 through 26. But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members, we have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, in verses 14 through 17, Paul addressed the person who thinks, uh, they don't need me, I'm insignificant. Here in these verses, he addresses the Christian who says, I don't need them. I've got it all under control. I don't need the body of Christ. Remember the, the hand illustration? If I went to pick up my water bottle and the hand turned around and said, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking the day off, you don't need me. Well, what if the hand was like, you know what, I'm doing all the work around here anyways, so I'm out of here. I mean... We know that that's ridiculous. The hand can't do that. It can't function without the rest of the body. That's what Paul is saying here. Ridiculous, right? The same for the Christian who acts like he's independent of his local body of believers. And that's how some Corinthians were acting in the Corinthian church. But how about you? Do you think of yourself, we've already talked about, as an unnecessary part of the body? here at Countryside, or do you see yourself as independent? You know, I'm, I don't really need them. I'm more holy than them. I, I don't sin as much as those friends. I shouldn't really probably be around them. I can do this on my own. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to be isolated. He wants you to think that you're independent because then it's much harder to fight, for, fight your sin and fight for holiness. And Satan sells us this lie through the world. 
Think about it. The world is constantly telling you to be an individual, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having your sense of style, but we spend far more time thinking about, you know, what kind of clothes we're going to wear, what kind of shoes we're going to wear, or what kind of car we're going to drive than we do about our brothers and sisters in Christ and how important we are to them and they are to us. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You must never think that you are so important that you don't need the body of Christ or so unimportant that they don't need you. Now, I just want to cover real quick, what does Paul mean here when he talks about the unpresentable and the presentable parts in verses 23 and 24? The language is kind of confusing. It's confusing both in the Greek and the English. But Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's referring to those, uh, he's extending the analogy. He's referring to those parts of our body that we cover and, or we should cover. But we don't cover different parts of our bodies and think that they're less important, right? Because we know that they serve a function. Right? We don't think, well, my face and my hands are so much more important, so therefore, you know, I just give them the more, more honor. No, we, we, we understand that our parts, uh, the parts of our bodies have different functions. And we don't look down on those different parts simply because they hold a, a less prominent place than, say, our face or our hands. Speaking of gifts in the church, right, we don't look down on those who are working behind the scenes week to week. We know that that kind of stuff is important. I know you're getting paid for it, but if you're on the CBC custodial staff, thank you for the work that you do. We need, we need these positions. We know that they are important and we don't look down on them. Now, in verses 25 and 26, I want to reread these to you again. Paul gives us the purpose or the reason for all of this, the so that, right? You ever see that, so that, or if you're reading ASV for whatever reason, they get, out of, get rid of the so and it's a little harder to, to pinpoint. You should circle those or underline those because this is the reason Paul is telling us all this. And I mean, I've been reiterating this, but the first part, listen to 25, so that there may be no division in the body. Right? Paul wants this church to be unified. But then he goes on to say, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Think about if you injure yourself, how the extent that you go to in order to protect that injury. Right? You, 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 you cut your finger, the paper cut, right? Like the smallest thing ever. And you have to protect it. My mom, I can't do the dishes. I mean, if I get soap in this thing, do you know how bad it's going to hurt? And we protect that thing, right? Or when something, you know, good happens. You PR a, a lift, a bench press or something, or you hit that game-winning shot. I mean, if that happens... It's not just your chest and arms that are celebrating, you know, like whatever that looks like. And the rest of your body's like, whatever, man. Or your hands after the game, right? I, it doesn't even make any sense because and it shouldn't make, that should, the same thing should happen in the body of Christ. It should just be automatic. When someone is suffering in the body of Christ, we should suffer with them. And when somebody is uh, rejoicing and celebrating in the body and joyful in the body of Christ, we too should be celebrating and joyful with them. Recently, I, I enjoy working out, and recently I injured my back. And so everything I did, right, I mean, I made, made sure I warmed it up for like 10 minutes before I actually got to working out, because if I didn't, then it was just 
chaos the rest of the day. I couldn't sit for long. I couldn't stand for long, right? I made sure I bent over properly every time I did something. It's safe to say that I thought about it all the time. But that's how it is with our bodies when we get injured. Is that how it is when we, a member of the body of Christ, is suffering or going through tribulations? Do we think about them? And do we spend time praying for them? So I wanted to end here with some, just some practical exhortation in this area. Because most of the time, and I, and I, fo- I want to focus specifically on prayer. Because a lot of times we feel like, oh man, that person's suffering. I have to say something to them that helps them get through this suffering. And then we try to do that and we kind of fumble through and we're like, that was dumb. Why did I say that? When oftentimes we could just spend time praying for them. It's not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to encourage them. That's some people's gifts. It's not mine. Right? And I, I'm like, why did I say that? I was an application and illustration for myself. But I think that we could spend uh, quality time in prayer. Right? When someone's suffering... What do we often do? We just say that quick one-off prayer like, oh yeah, I forgot, I need to pray for that person. Lord, help them get through this suffering and, and that's it, right? When in reality, we could be spending time lifting them up in prayer. And you're memorizing James 1. That's a place we can go to pray through in order to pray for our brothers and sisters in suffering. But there's another place as well. I want you to turn to Romans 5 quickly. Romans 5. And the first five five verses are helpful to give us a a paradigm for how to to pray and lift up our brothers and sisters who are suffering. So that we, we, and this will help connect us, right? Because then we feel the burden. Uh, We're thinking about them and and, and don't want them to be in this suffering. But we also know that God has his perfect reasons for suffering. So read with me verses one through five in chapter five of Romans. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now there's a lot that that can be said here in this passage, but I want to show it to you as a, a paradigm to pray for your brothers or sisters who are suffering. First, pray that they would have peace. Why? Not because of the suffering that they're going through, but because they're reminded that they've been justified by faith through, or by Christ through faith. And they have peace with God, right? They don't have to, remember Job's friends? They were like, Job, you're, you're receiving all this suffering because you've sinned and God's mad at you or whatever. No, Job was a righteous man. They, they should have peace, Lord. Grant them peace. Remind them of the justification they have in Jesus Christ so that they can look beyond their circumstances. And also pray that they would have joy. The result of this, the immediate result of this is joy. Why? Again, not because of the circumstances that they're in. They're not joyful over the fact that they're going through the trial. They're joyful over the fact that they have peace with God. And then, Lord, grant them perseverance or endurance, we could say through this trial, so the trial would not be wasted. Oftentimes we find ourselves in difficult situations and we're just like, man, I gotta get out of this. This is bad. 
we should be focusing on how can I, how can I glorify and honor God in this trial? It's not wrong to, you know, try to alleviate pain or something. That's not what I'm saying, if that's what the trial is. But the point is, pray that this trial would have its full effect for that person that's going through suffering. Why? Because what is that effect? It's Christ-like character, right? It's Christ-like character and it's hope, knowing that God is bringing us from this world of sin and the sin that we still live in to glory. And this is part of the process. And then we could say truly, like Paul says in Romans 12, 15, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So don't think that you're insignificant in the body of Christ. Don't think that you're independent of the body of Christ. Recognize that God has saved you for a purpose. And that's to love one another, edify one another, build one another up, encourage one another, the list goes on. Be encouraged that you're here for a purpose. God saved you for a purpose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for uh, gifting those whom you've called, whom you've justified, whom you've washed by regeneration and your spirit. Father, we're thankful that you saved us for a purpose and you use us in that grand work of redemption so that we can pro proclaim the gospel to others, so that we can edify our brothers and sisters. We pray that you would encourage us and help us to do so through your power, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. Lord, I pray for any of those who are here who don't know you, that they would recognize that this spirit baptism is only for those who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ. But they, all people, will be baptized, even if they refuse Christ, and they will be baptized by fire. Lord, we pray that that would happen to none here, that you would grant them regeneration and bring them into your fold. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.